to be here uh, this morning. You, you know, as, as, as human beings, we tend to love uh, radical transformation stories. These, these rags to riches kind, kind of stories that we hear uh, on an ongoing basis. You know, the, the concept of somebody who's down and out, somebody who's lost it all, somebody who has been uh, to the deepest depths and the darkest places, and through some kind of experience with God, they experience a sudden and, and radical transformation, uh, a caterpillar to butterfly type story, which we're, we seem to be incredibly attracted to. We like the idea that change and transformation is possible. We like that idea because if that's true, then it's true for us, right? If it's true for that person, if they can change, then I can change. And so we like this idea, and we're drawn to it. In Acts chapter 9, there is a story of radical and sudden transformation. Saul, Saul of Tarsus, has an encounter on the Damascus Road that will forever alter the course of his life, and in the end, also forever alters the course of the Christian faith. Many of us have heard it. Many of us, uh, uh, through uh, our experience of Christianity and our time in the church, have, under, uh, have heard this story and are wrapped up in it. We get wrapped up in it very quickly. I want to just read it, uh, the story of Saul's transformation. Uh, it's from Acts chapter 9, verse 1 to 9. If you have a Bible with you, that's great. If not, I'm going to read it. It's going to be up on the screen. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. There's a lot of drama in that story. You can almost see it as a scene in a movie. It's like action-packed. And the, this immediacy of Saul's change, this immediacy of his being struck blind and then being led into the city, it's stunning in its intensity. And so we, we tend to look at this and we tend to read Acts chapter 9 as Saul's conversion. I mean, if you look at it in the Bible, that's even what it's titled. In almost every Bible you read, it's going to be titled Saul's conversion, Saul's transformation, Saul's change. We convince ourselves at some point here, I'm radically destroying people's Sunday school beliefs, that this is where Saul changed his name to Paul, which is not the case. 
Saul and Paul were names that he used interchangeably even before his conversion. Sorry to burst your bubble on that one. But this is that place of radical transformation, that radical change, and we go, this is Saul's conversion. But Saul's is not the only transformation that happens in this story. Saul's is not the only change, and I would argue that the second transformation is actually more significant for us and carries a greater lesson for us in the church today. Because you see, after the blinding light, and after the booming voice, and after the blindness, there's a quiet transformation that we often overlook. This transformation, more than the first, should actually, in, within the church, rock us to our core. And it should cause us to examine our own lives to see whether the love that we have been given has altered our vision to the same extent that it did for this man. That it alters our vision to the point that it changes how we see the people around us and how we treat everyone who comes across our path, even those who would set themselves up as our enemies. So let's read the second part of this story, which goes from Acts 9, 10 to 17. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias is a simple man. A follower of Jesus, going about his business, going about his day, when he receives a vision from God. The vision tells Ananias to go and find the man known as Saul of Tarsus and pray for him. And Ananias does a double take. Right? You can almost see it. Whiplash. You want me to do what? To, to who? Because Ananias knows who Saul is. He knows Saul's reputation and what he has done to his fellow Christians. And so because of this, Ananias protests. 
vigorously. He says, I know this man, Saul. I know who he is. I know what kind of evil he's done. I don't want to go. He doesn't want to. I mean, who can blame him? Saul set himself up as an enemy of Christianity. And his actions bore out the violence that he was willing to undertake to wipe them off the face of the earth. This is the man that Jesus is asking Ananias to go pray for. This is the man that Jesus is asking Ananias to go and be alone in a room with. This man who has set himself up as Ananias' enemy. So to me, what is so miraculous about this story is not the blinding light. It's not the booming voice. It's not the conversion of Saul, even those are, those are amazing things. For me, it is the action of a simple man in response to a request from the Lord he loved so much. It is Ananias' response to the request to go and pray for a man who until recently had harbored murderous intentions towards the followers of Jesus Christ. It's that action that bears the greatest weight for me and carries for me the most powerful lesson from this story. See, Ananias ends up going and praying for Saul. And in doing so, he might not have answered a call that was as flashy or as dramatic as Saul's conversion, but it came with greater risk. The thing about Ananias is simple for me. He knew the love that had changed him. He knew the source of that love. And he knew that that love was for all humanity, including Saul. This knowledge of who God was, which ties into what Jesse spoke about last week, this knowledge, this wisdom, this knowledge of who God was and what God was like, moved him to act in love and compassion even toward this self-proclaimed enemy of the faith. So Ananias went. He went. And he prays for Saul. And in that, I think, there are two fundamental questions that I need to ask myself and that we need to ask ourselves. Have we been so impacted by the love of God that we are willing to trust Him when He asks us to do something that is outside of our comfort zone? When He asks us to go somewhere when he asks us to speak to someone. 
when he asks us to open our hearts to people we may not want to. And the second question is this, is there enough compassion within me to look into the face of my enemy and see what God sees? Let me ask that question again. Is there enough compassion within me to look into the face of my enemy and see what God sees? The truth is, this is difficult. It's not easy to do. There are people who have hurt me deeply, wounded me deeply. I don't know. But I do know this. That if I have been genuinely impacted by the love of Jesus, if that's true, then I know I'm going to be called to think outside the box. I know I'm going to be called to think and act in ways that don't fit in with my pattern of thinking. I'm going to be asked, maybe, to speak to people that I would rather not. I'm going to be asked to go places that I would rather not go to. I'm going to be asked to do things that I'd rather not do. A realization of how much we are loved by God should lead to extravagant acts of love towards others. I've said that before. I'll say it again. A realization of how much we are loved by God should lead to extravagant acts of love towards others. When we realize that we are loved, it should realize then that all people around us are loved the same way. When I realize I'm loved as I am, in the midst of my mess, in the midst of the bad decisions that I've made, in the midst of the people that I have hurt, both unintentionally and intentionally, along my journey, and I realize that I am still loved as I am, then it should be impossible for me to look at another human being and not recognize that they are loved as they are. This realization should create a solidarity with people around us that leads us to want to express that love in practical and tangible ways. Erwin McManus says in his book, love causes us to both love people more and to love more people. Love causes us to both love people more and to love more people. And to express that love in acts of blessing and compassion. This reality even extends to people that we would classify as our enemies. In Luke 6, Jesus makes the following statement, But I say to you, 
We know this one, right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is it to you? But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. These Jesus statements that He makes on a constant basis and I read the Gospels and I read these statements and I'm like, are you nuts? But He makes these statements. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Uh. What? I mean, we live, let's be honest, in a revenge-driven society. Our entire concept of justice is what we call balancing the scales, getting even. Right? You hurt me, I get to hurt you. Now, we never do it to the same extent. This is the problem with most of us, right? Like, you hurt me, I never hurt you the same way you hurt me. I always hurt you a little bit more. Why do I do that? So you're afraid of me. Right? So you won't do it again. But it doesn't work, does it? Because you're angry now. And you want revenge, and so we keep going back and forth and back and forth, hurting each other again and again and again. And we quote Scripture to, to begin to justify this behavior. Right? We use a passage of Scripture we're all familiar with, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We use this passage of Scripture. We love it. We go, mm, see, that's justice. We don't recognize as historically this movement is a movement to something better. So even an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's moving us somewhere, and Jesus is the culmination of that movement. Right? So an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, basically what you're talking about at one time in history, right? You would come, you would steal my cow. So I'd notice my cow was stolen, I knew you stole it, so I would go to your farm, and I would slaughter your whole family. Right? Pretty soon people were going, yeah, that's not really a great way to live. So instead of doing that, let's do it this way. If you steal my cow, I get to go to your farm and take one of your cows as payment. You see the movement? It's a movement away from revenge. It's a movement away from trying to do that kind of stuff. And then Jesus moves it even further. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. 
Now, many of us are prepared to love our friends and our family. I mean, I love my friends. I love my family. It's easy to do, right? They're good people. I love them. I love to be around them. But loving my enemies, that's another thing entirely. And I'm willing to love and accept people who believe like me, who think like me, and who act like me, who go to the same church as me, who hold to the same beliefs that I do. Oh, yes, we love and accept those people. It's a little harder to do with people we disagree with, and it's getting harder in our society as we polarize and move farther and farther away from people that we disagree with. We find it exceedingly difficult to love those who we consider to be our enemies. And we echo the cry of Jonah when he's called to speak to the Ninevites. In Jonah 4, he says this, O Lord, after he has preached to the Ninevites and after they have repented, you suddenly discover that this is not what Jonah wanted. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. He wanted God to smite them. Right? And so he cries out this, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's some pretty harsh feelings he has towards those Ninevites. He would rather die than see them redeemed and saved. We go, that's ridiculous. Except that like Jonah, often I find myself that I would rather die than have God show mercy to people who have hurt me. I want punishment for those who have harmed me. I want vengeance, not mercy. Yet God's desire is that all should be saved and all should come to a knowledge of the truth. This is God's desire. And so this simple man, this Ananias, gets up and he goes to Saul. What's more, when he sees him, he greets him with this statement. Brother. Brother, Ananias calls a man he certainly feared, a man who set himself up as his enemy, a man who had done horrible things to people like him and had every intention of continuing down that path. He calls that man brother. Why? Why would he do that? Simply because the love he had experienced in Christ changed the way he saw people. And he was able to view Saul the way God viewed Saul. As a dearly Beloved child, just like him. 
Saul was God's child. Ananias was God's child. That made them brothers. Dostoevsky once wrote, to love a person means to see him as God intended him to be. I believe that that was what Ananias was able to do when he looked at Saul. Now I wonder what would happen in our world if we in the church started doing that. I wondered what would happen if we looked on our adversaries or our enemies with the eyes of Christ. If we allowed the love that we have been given to drop the scales from our eyes and allow us to see people as God sees them. If that love so deeply impacted us that we responded to all people from that place. There is a verse that every Christian should know by heart. A verse that expresses this. John 3.16 says this, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. Now in Christian circles, we love to play this dichotomy between Christians and the world, right? Christians, good people, easy to love. We like those people. The world, bad people, enemies, need to be punished. But here, what does God say? He loved the world. Do we love it? Do we? When we realize that the love God showed for us is not for us alone, when we acknowledge that God loves the whole world, then we can come to the realization that love is stronger than hate. That reconciliation is more powerful than resentment. That acceptance is more transforming than prejudice. And change happens when we see brothers and sisters, not enemies. This passage is a tale of two transformations. Yes, Saul was transformed, but Ananias was transformed as well. And his transformation is directly responsible for Saul's. Because Ananias saw his enemy as a brother. He saw him as a beloved child of God, as a co-worker for Christ, and as a result, hate dissolved into love, and walls came tumbling down, and the gospel prevailed and was proclaimed like never before. The same vision and opportunity that was given to Ananias is given to each of us today. Because Jesus has given the church the power to break down the walls that 
exist between our enemies and us. We've been given love to tear down the walls of hatred. We've been given forgiveness to tear down the walls of injustice. We've been given compassion to tear down the walls of suffering. Most of all, like Saul, we've been given the Holy Spirit to tear down the walls of bitterness, resentment, and brokenness and build pathways to connection, healing, and wholeness. As difficult as it is, Ananias' transformation needs to be ours as well. Our experience of love needs to bring us to a place where we see all people as our brothers and sisters and treat them accordingly. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your love for each of us. I want to thank you for a love so deep, so wide, so broad, so extreme that it utterly transforms and changes us. But God, my prayer is that it would change our vision. It would change how we see. It would change how we see ourselves. It would change how we see you. It would change how we see the world. And that that love would instill in us a desire to move into the world. To see people that you love. To see brothers and sisters. And to be a part of the redemption and the transformation of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.